We are entering a four-part sermon series through Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. The parable of the Good Samaritan. How many guys are familiar? Parable of the Good Samaritan? Okay, and those of you that didn't raise your hand, you're too lazy to raise your hand, so I understand. 99.9% of us, Christian or not, you've heard of this parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to spend four weeks on it. Um, before we do, though, a couple of things in terms of announcements. Uh, this upcoming... Uh, Wednesday, as Nathan mentioned, monthly prayer meeting. Please, please, please join us. Corporately, we're going to come together, pray, pray for one another, pray for our church, pray for our city. It's one of the most important foundational things that we do. It'll go from like 7.30 to 8.30, so look forward to seeing many of you there. Secondly, today at 12.30, downstairs in the Fellowship Hall, it's going to be very specific. We're going to be talking about church planting slash uptown church planting, not just vision of our church in general. It'll go for about 30 to 45 minutes, so please, please, please uh, make your way down there, 1230, so we can share our vision and heart with you of why we are a church planting church and what we look forward to seeing God doing. All right? Okay. Thank you, Grace. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to jump right in. Luke chapter 10. Uh, The title of the sermon series literally comes from a book that I read about two years ago, The Call of the Jericho Road. And uh, and much of the material that I'm going to be talking about sharing is sort of foundational to what the book is about. So if anybody's interested, you can go on Amazon and check that out. The Call of the Jericho Road. Uh, Here's the context as we come to Luke chapter 10. The first nine chapters in the book of Luke, essentially the gospel writer Luke, talks about who Jesus is. And then starting in Luke chapter 10, majority of the second half of Luke, Luke talks about what does it mean then for those who know and believe this Jesus to follow him. Can I just say something that's very obvious? Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus, If you don't follow Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. Pretty simple, right? Yes? Yes? Okay. Luke talks about, starting in chapter 10, what does it mean for those who follow Jesus to follow him, discipleship? He talks about two things for the rest of the book. One, he talks about gospel gospel messaging. What does it mean? He says, every single one of us who follow Jesus has been given a message, and we are to share this message of who Christ is and what he has done. We are to share that, declare that with people who don't believe in him. But then he turns right on and says, there's another part of being a follower of Jesus just as critical, and it's gospel neighboring. What does it mean for us to be neighbors? as followers of Christ. And essentially what Luke begins to say is that to be a neighbor, gospel neighboring, is to meet the concrete and tangible needs of those around us. Check this out. Whether they believe our message or not. Gospel messaging, gospel neighboring, intrinsic to discipleship, following Jesus. So we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay. All right. We're going to look at the... Open your Bibles and here we go. Okay. 
strap on your seatbelts and hold on because it's going to take us through the many twists and turns. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke says that he is an expert in the law. We think civil law. We think attorneys, lawyers. But essentially what Luke is talking about is a religious expert. Okay? He is a biblical scholar. And it says that he came and stood which is a sign of respect. So he's showing respect to Jesus in that culture. He even calls him teacher, which was also a sign of respect. So he's showing tremendous sign of respect to Jesus by standing and calling him a teacher. But Luke says that he did this to test Jesus. In other words, this guy has an agenda. What is his agenda? Well, Jesus is always welcoming sinners, right? He's always welcoming those people who are not very good at obeying the law, the thing that this guy studies and gives his life for. And Jesus also going around saying things like this. It drove religious people crazy. He went around saying things like, you could enter the kingdom now. You could enter the kingdom now. And the religious people scratch their heads and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Because many of the religious people back then believe what some of you believe today, which is religion is one of doing good works. And at the end of this whole deal, your good works would sort of be, you know, weighed against your bad works if you have bad deeds. And if you have more good deeds than bad deeds, well, then you could enter the kingdom and inherit eternal life. And Jesus is going around saying, you could enter the kingdom now. To which they said, how do you know? How can you say that? So this law expert is trying to trap Jesus because he clearly sees Jesus as somebody who just doesn't respect the law, right? So he's going, okay, I'm going to try and trap you by having you say something along the lines of, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do with the law. God accepts everybody. You don't have to obey it. God, God just accepts everybody to which he can go, ha ha! I knew you didn't respect the law of our fathers, respect the law of God, and Expose Jesus as a fraud. Well, Jesus has a trap for him. But Jesus' traps, one scholar said, is always traps of love. Just on a side note, anybody feeling trapped by Jesus these days? His traps are always traps of love to draw you to him. Another whole sermon in and of itself. Let's go on. Verse 26. So what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Uh, I read in a commentary that Jesus in the four Gospels is asked 300 questions. And he answers three of them. Jesus did what any good teachers do, right? Jesus did something what, you know, all parents do, which is when you're asked a question. This isn't Jesus, but I did. Total side tangent. You know, Parker one time was like, Daddy, what shape is God? What shape is God? To which I did, you know, I don't know, Parker. What do you think the shape of God? Anyway, that's not, that's not what Jesus is doing. So 300 questions he only asked three times, right? So Jesus comes back with a question. He says, well, you tell me. You're the law expert. You do this for a living. What do you think is in the law? Now, to answer a question like that, literally, if he wanted to answer a question like that, this religious scholar at the time found about 613 commandments and prohibitions in the Old Testament. 
613. So it would take him about six weeks to go through every single one of them. Or he could summarize it, which was what all, all the rabbis taught. They summarized all the law into two principles, and that is, he says it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you answer correctly. Real quick. They come from two Old Testament passages. The commandment to love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, which we'll look at more next week. While the commandment to love God is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Now, you guys, everybody look up here. What is Jesus getting at? Here's what he's getting at, okay? Let's look at these commandments and what they really are, okay? What does it mean to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind? A name, William Templeton, said this. He said, religion is what you do with your solitude. Religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, religion is what you do when you're standing on a street corner with nothing to do. Nothing to do. You got no iPod. You got no, you got no books to read. You got nothing to do. You're standing there for hours. Where does your mind naturally go? Where does your mind, if you have nothing to do, unfettered, where does your mind naturally go? What is it inevitably just kind of float to? Your thoughts you're dwelling on, meditating on. Is it God? It is his beauty? Is it his attributes? It is his character? Is it, is it where your thoughts naturally, inevitably go? Answer, church? Of course not. Well, Templeton says, what your thoughts naturally go to, to dwell on, that's your real God. That's your real deity. That's your real Savior. Here's what it means to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You love God so much that he dominates your solitude. He's what you most want to think about at all times. To love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind means he is preeminent in your thought. Day and night, meditating on character, beauty, grace, mercy. Loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind means that you always have what you most want because you have God. Nothing absorbs you more. Nothing delights you more. He is it. Love God. That's it. How are we doing? The second, he says, is love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? By the way, it doesn't even say love your neighbor more than yourself. Do you notice? It just says what? Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's easy, right? What's Jesus saying? He says, love your neighbor. That means meet the needs of your neighbors with all the speed, with all the joy, with all the energy, and with all the eagerness that you meet your own needs. That's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're just as delighted when their needs are met as if your own needs were met. You're just as happy when they're happy because your happiness is so wrapped up in their happiness. That's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be as delighted, meet their needs with as much joy, speed, energy, passion, heart as you meet your own needs. That's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing? How am I doing? Hmm. Hmm. So Jesus said in verse 28, do this and you'll live. 
So guy says, what do I need to do? He goes, just do that. That's it. Yeah. Love God so that he dominates your solitude. Meet the needs of your neighbors with joy, speed, delight, passion, energy, and you meet all needs. What's Jesus getting at? Jesus is saying, dude. Or in Hebrew, it's bahor. <laughs> bahor. You think I don't take the law seriously? Let me tell you something, bro. I take the law way more seriously than you do. See, you, you think you could actually do this. Uh-huh. You think you could actually do this. He's saying, go ahead. Go ahead. Go for it. Right? He's saying, you think you could actually do this. Go for it. You can be accepted by God or eternal life if you can obey the law perfectly. But look at the law. Look at what it's after. Look at the motive it's after. Look at the character it's after. Look at the heart it's after. He's trying to get the guy to see, you have no shot to obey it, and you need someone else to obey it for you. This is brilliant by Jesus. Do you know why? Because number one, Jesus is saying, the law outlines a way of life that's right. You know, for those people who think Jesus wasn't really about the law, he's saying, no, the law is absolutely spot on. It is right. This is how you ought to live. Can I just make it? It is reasonable to say, how do you treat someone who has given you everything and sustains you every moment of your life? It's only fair that you love him with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's only reasonable to expect from your neighbors what you expect out of yourself or vice versa. You expect out of yourself what you expect out of your neighbors, is it not? So love your neighbors as you love yourself. This is the essence of the righteousness that God requires. He doesn't flinch. Do it. But he says the law, even though it's the way of life, it is not the way to life. You absolutely should live this way, but you'll never be saved this way. Why? The problem is not the law. The problem is that we, what? Can't do it. You tracking so far? Verse 29. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he said, eh, okay. You haven't quite got me yet. I mean, hey, okay. Who's my neighbor? Who, who, who's my neighbor? Luke gives us an insight to his mind. This is a guy who wants to earn acceptance before God on his own merit. So he says, who's my neighbor? Literally, here's what he's doing. And I'm so glad he did this because we have the teaching of Jesus. He says, who's my, let's whittle down the law so that it's doable and reachable. By the way, he's just living out of his own context. What do I mean? It was known at this time that there was about, as I said, 613 commands and prohibitions in the Old Testament, right? But here's what the rabbis did to make these laws more doable, okay? They made interpretations on top of these laws. So they had hundreds and thousands of interpretations about the law to make it doable. And they call these halakhas, which means interpretations. So here's what they did. They had rules upon rules upon rules upon rules of what it meant to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you're sitting there going, this kind of sounds like my church back home. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. okay. Oh, some of us, yeah. yeah. So this is what it looks like today, okay? Let me, let me give you an example, okay? Let me, this is what it looks like today. How many of you maybe grew up in church, I'm dating myself, that, 
that, that, that taught you that dancing was a sin. Yes. Now, now he, he, here's, here's what I was taught, okay? Here's how they made the connection. Dancing has something to do with premarital sex, which was a sin. Y'all laughing, y'all tracking, okay. So here's how, here's how it went. Some of you are like, uh-huh, okay. So premarital sex is a sin, right? And if you're in youth ministry, of course, they, they stress that and hammer that down your throat, right? Which is biblical, but then, you know, it only appears a handful of times. But they stressed it, and it's absolutely a right biblical teaching. But here's how they tie dancing to sex. They love dancing. Well, in order to dance, you need music, right? And you need music. You need loud, chest-thumping Passions arousing, hormones inflaming music, right? So you're on a dance floor, and you got these lyrics being pumped to your brain. You're going, wow. And then, of course, if you want to dance, you got to kind of get close to somebody, right? So as you're dancing along, it's kind of, uh, you know, and a touch here and a touch there, and all of a sudden, your passions are inflamed. And next thing you know, fornicators, right? So, so you know, here's, here's what they said, right? They said, it's a dance thing, right? I'm like seriously offending some people in this room right now. But anyway, so dancing, right? So here's what they said. They said, look, Premier was like, wrong, but here's what they said. They came up with their own halakha, and they said, dancing is also a sin because it could eventually be. So anybody? Here's why I mentioned this. Anybody a recovering legalist? Anybody? Okay, there's a handful of us that are like honest enough to admit it, right? I am a recovering legalist, and here's what I'm talking about. Here's why legalism is a cop-out. Here's why legalism is a cop-out. People think legalistic Christianity is so hard because of all these rules. Legalistic Christianity is not hard. Legalistic Christianity makes Christianity easier. Do you know why? Because legalistic Christianity says all these rules and makes Christianity all about these rules. And if you tried really hard enough, you could check them off one by one and feel pretty smug and good about yourself. The problem is legalistic Christianity forces someone to neglect the real issue, which is what Jesus was always after, which is the heart, the motives, the attitudes. Oh, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. Check! I don't commit adultery. I'm a good person. But if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already. See, sin in the heart and the attitude is much more difficult to root out. Legalistic Christianity doesn't make Christianity harder. It waters it down. Jesus is always talking about your heart. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week. Just quick, you know, here's what legalistic Christians do. It's about two things. Number one, it's about making them feel good and self-righteous because they get to go, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. But here's the really, really just toxic thing about legalistic Christianity, right? It's not just like, I'm self-righteous. I'm a really good person because I do this. We use rules to hurt people. Because we, we, we have these rules we check off, and here's what we do. We scope out everybody else to go, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you because I do these things, and you don't. And we use rules to hurt people. Jesus comes along, and you know what he says? He says to the religious legalists, you are fixated on your love of law. I came to show you the law of love. Boils on to two things. The highest law, which is what? Love 
God, love your neighbor. More on this next week. By the way, I'm just, just we're just going to go through the parable today. Not a lot of applicants, just through the parable today. We've got three weeks to apply. Okay. So he says he wants to justify himself. Why, why is he doing that? Well, the premise of his life, you begin to see it. God will accept me if I'm virtuous enough. And he says that Jesus is just knocking him off his premise. He, Jesus is knocking him off his foundation. Because Jesus goes, okay, you think you're virtuous in the old acceptance or in acceptance before God. Okay, well, do that. Love God like that. Love your neighbor like that. And then you will live. What's Jesus saying? Jesus does this to anybody who comes to him. Jesus doesn't turn the heat down and make it easier. Jesus turns the heat up. He's saying the only way that you'll encounter me is for you to recognize that the mercy of God comes to those who recognize their morality. Their self-righteous works will never earn acceptance before me. And unless you are crushed and humbled by the love God requires, you'll never be open to receive the love that God offers freely in Jesus. You tracking? So what should the lawyer have said? He should have said, you're right. I can't do it. I can't. Tell me. What do I need? No, he doesn't. He goes, I want to justify myself. But if he would have said, I can't do it, what what do I need to do? Here's what Jesus would have said. And he said this on countless occasions throughout the Gospels. He says, it's only by the mercy of God. And mercy of God is this. You're a spiritual failure. Me? Yes, you are. You're spiritually bankrupt. Me? Yes, you are. Here's what I did. I came and I obeyed the law perfectly. I love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Perfectly. And I love my neighbor as myself. Perfectly. And see, I didn't come, Jesus says, as a teacher to go, here's how you do it. Let me show you how to obey the law of God. Let me, he says, no, I came not to show you how to justify yourself. I came as your justifier. See, Jesus says, I lived the life you should have lived perfectly. And I died the death you should have died perfectly. And when you believe in me, not as a teacher, philosopher, but as your savior, the perfect that I, life that I lived. This is amazing. The perfect life that I lived becomes yours. Who said, oh man? Isn't that incredible news? Isn't that fantastic? It is fantastic. Why would anybody want to trade that, the gospel, for religious Christianity? That brother's response right there, that should be all of our response if you truly get it. Do you realize there's a... Y'all haven't heard me preach in like five weeks, so it's going to be a bit of a shock. I know. Shock to your system. Oh, yeah, he likes to yell. I forgot. Yeah. Do you realize what this means? This means that if you're a child of God, when God sees you right now, not tomorrow, not when you do better, right now, he looks at you as if you love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That when God looks at you right now, Not tomorrow. Not when you do better. He looks at you as if you love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. And you go, I don't do that. Of course you don't. But Jesus did for you. So he says, who's my neighbor? And I'm glad he did. Because Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. In the story... Jesus talks about, oh, we're going to get to this. Let me give you a bit of a context. By the way, my mouth, oh, man. Some of you guys know I'm trying to recover from this really bad cold flu or something. 
There's a huge debate going on at this time, you guys. Huge debate. Jesus, you guys know, was always talking mostly to religious people. Few six, there's mostly the religious people. And here's what the religious people, the religious scholars believed at that time. The debate was about who is my neighbor, right? And here's what they said. They said, they said, we're the people, chosen people of God, and we're redeemed, we're saved, we're forgiven, we're in, we're chosen of God. So we're, we're, we're in. And so they had this very distinct distinction of we're in and they're out. We are us and they are them. Okay? And so they had these list of things that just kind of designated and separated who was them, who was not. So one of the questions they had was, who was my neighbor? And according to their religious tradition at the time, their neighbor, they defined this, their neighbor was a Jew who was obeying the law. That was their neighbor. Your neighbor is a Jew who was obeying the law of God. That's who your neighbor is. So not only are they saying, we're in, we're redeemed, we're saved, we're forgiven, and they're not, of course, distinction, but a neighbor is a Jew, a fellow Jew, who is observing the law of God. That's who qualifies as neighbors. So everybody knows, Gentiles, not neighbors. Samaritans, Samaritans, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Context. Jesus, however, in his teaching, and more importantly, the way he lived his life, he's throwing out these bombs, man. He's going around. He's acting like, you know who his neighbors are? Prostitutes are his neighbors. What? Tax collectors are his neighbors. What? People who aren't very good at obeying the law are his neighbor. He, Jesus is going around acting like everybody is his neighbor. And that was scandalous and heretical to these people. Absolutely. So the debate is, who is my neighbor? And to the Jews, it's people like me, dress like me, talk like me, act like me, behave like me. And Jesus threw out these moms. By the way, this is very relevant today. The question for today might be something along the lines of, who's your brother and sister? Who are you responsible to? Are Muslims your brothers and sisters? Are Hindus your brothers and sisters? Are atheists your brothers and sisters? Anybody watch the news these past two weeks? I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but the governor of newly elected Alabama was at a church, and he said, y'all sitting here that know Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, you're my brothers and sisters. If you don't believe in him, you are not my brothers and my sisters. Now, I give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, he's using churchy language, you know what I mean? Brother in Christ, sister in Christ, or brothers, family of God, yeah. But there's a danger in how we speak. Amen? About who our brothers and our sisters are. Because we're literally saying, who are we responsible to? Are we responsible to that person who doesn't believe what you believe? And the answer, you better believe it. Are we responsible just to our Christian family? Or are we responsible to the human family? Whether they believe, whether they agree, or not. Here's a parable, verse 30. In Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Everybody look up here. Context. In the first century, there were two ways that you could identify somebody. You could identify, are they part of us or are they part of them? One is how you spoke, your dialect, your language, and secondly is how you dress. Luke puts a little detail, doesn't he? He says he was, what? Stripped naked, which means you can't tell. Is he 
secondly, he is half dead, which means he can't speak. Is he, is he one of ours? I don't know. Go check. He, he's naked. He can't talk. How do we know? All we know is that this guy is, listen, just a human being. That's all he is. Just another human being. Created in the image of God. With dignity, inherent dignity. But Jesus listens to her going, whoa, 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 I caught that. Tell us more. What's he look like? What's he talk like? So the priest has a dilemma. The priest says, I'm responsible if he's a fellow Jew who's observing the law. Problem is, he can't talk. And he's naked. How do I know if I should go help? Uh, uh, uh. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Can I just show you a slide? Here's a picture. I think we have it. Here's a picture of the road to Jericho. He passed by on the other side. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay. <laughs> Leave that picture up there. Detail. Temple. Where the Jews worshipped is in Jerusalem. 17 miles down the road is the city of Jericho. 17 miles. Three groups of people are constantly going up and down the road of Jericho from Jericho to Jerusalem. They are the priest, the Levite, and thirdly, Jewish laymen called the delegation of Israel. In other words, these three people served in the temple on two week rotations. Worship of God. And this road will be filled with the priests, the Levites, and the Jewish laymen called the delegation of Israel who travel up and down this road all the time performing duties at the temple, going back home to Jericho. Performing duties at the temple, going back to Jericho. By the way, by the way, the priest and the Levite right here always gets hammered, right? The, the lesson, the moral lesson of the story, children, is do not be like the priest and the Levites. Next week, I'm going to defend the priest and the Levites. Yeah. So come back next week. If you're his audience, though, check this out. You're listening to the story, and everybody knows the context. Jesus talks about the priest and the Levite. The third person coming down the road. Who are you expecting? A Jewish layman called the del- Jesus says, but a what? Samaritan. And by now, you got to understand, the Jewish audience is like, yeah, a Jewish la- He didn't just say what he, 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 did he say what? By the way, they didn't utter the word Samaritan. You'll see in a moment. Where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Sunday school, brief lesson, Jews and Samaritans, they what? Hated each other. I found some old rabbinical writings of how much they hated each other. Here's one from Ben Sirach, circa about 200 B.C. There are two nations in my soul detest. The third is not even a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Sire, the Philistines, yeah, and the stupid people living in Shechem. Samaritans lived where? In Shechem. Next quote. He that eats the bread of the Samaritans like one that eats the flesh of the swine. Next quote, please. The Samaritans were publicly cursed. 
This is from Josephus. A petition was daily offered up praying that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. Yeah, if you're Gucci, you got up in the morning, you said, God, I don't want to see any Samaritans in heaven, which means I wish that they would go to. Yeah. And last one other example. Jesus talking to a bunch of religious leaders in John chapter 8, and they are so mad at him, they call him a what? A Samaritan. <laughs> They're thinking of all the swear words to say. They're going, I want to call you the worst thing in the world. I'm going to call you a Samaritan. <laughs> and demon possessed The hatred was mutual. I'll talk a little bit more about this next week. And Jesus says, when this guy, he's talking to a Jew, when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Greek word of pity is the word compassion, and it has its root in the word bowels. In other words, the Samaritan sees this Jew on the road, and he is moved in his gut. When's the last time you, when's the last time you saw something? And, you, you know, a gut reaction, not because you were grossed out, you know? You're like, ah, not like that. But when's the last time you saw something, and compassion and mercy so moved you that literally it felt like somebody punched you in the stomach. By the way, this word, most often used in the gospel to describe the emotional state of Jesus. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. No, Jesus, not oil and wine. Why oil and wine? Here's why. Oil and wine were elements used by the priests and the Levites in the temple for worship. And the word pour is another word used for worship. This is just me. I haven't seen any commentators say this, but maybe this parable, Jesus is saying, maybe this is what true worship looks like. Maybe he has illusions, you know, I don't know, like Isaiah 58, like Isaiah 61, like Amos 3, no, no, no. 34, then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Question, church, are there inns in the desert? If you want to do an inn, do an inn. If you want to run a business and then do you do it in the desert? Answer, no. There are no inns in the desert. Where is the inn? The inn is in the city of Jericho. Question, if you are a Jew and you have a hated Samaritan who is half dead on your horse, do you go to a Jewish town? Answer, no. You leave him at the edge of the town and you take off. What does he do? He takes the man into the heart of the city of Jericho, goes to an inn. You know what this is? What scholar said? This would be like a Great Plains Indian in 1875 with a scalped cowboy on his horse riding into Dodge City, checking into a room on top of the saloon and staying overnight to take care of him. Yeah, just like that. Verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra that you have. Why is that important? Because this is a culture in which you were imprisoned for bad debt. You owe people money, you go to prison. Jesus talked about that frequently. In other words, if this guy can't pay the money owed to the innkeeper, he can't leave. And the innkeeper says, do whatever it takes, however long it takes. I'm going to come back and pay everything. By the way, two denarii is about two months' rent. 
Not a small sum of money, is it? Who are we talking about here? The Samaritan is not just an unknown stranger. He is a espoused, hated enemy. And yet, this Samaritan, risking his life at a tremendous cost to himself, with a total disruption of his schedule. And oh, by the way, yeah, he was going somewhere. Don't you hate it when you're going somewhere and you got some homeless guy saying, hey, 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 I got, I got places to go, man. I got people to meet. I got uh, time for you. I'm about to leave. Ring, not her again. <sighs> Hello? We hate it when our schedules are disrupted, aren't we? You know, we just... Disruption to his schedule. Time, energy, money, life. Gives it all. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? You know what I love about that? Jesus doesn't answer his question. The guy says, give me a list. Who is my neighbor? Onus is on them. Who is my neighbor? Check, 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 check. Jesus goes... No, who do you need to be a neighbor to? Answer, everybody. Everybody? Jesus, there are lots of people in the city of Chicago you know what needs. You mean all of them? Like when I have time. I want to have some extra money. I'm so tired. When I, when, I, when I, you know, flex my schedule a little bit and leave some room to help the needy. Who's my neighbor? What do they look like? What do they talk like? They believe what I believe? Are they like me? Do I like them? Who's my neighbor? Not the question. Question, who do you need to be a neighbor to? Answer, everybody. The expert in the law replied, the, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, yep, go and do likewise. Meet the needs of the people around you. Look out there at the people that you normally despise. Look out there at the people that don't believe what you believe. And I want you to meet their needs in a way that it will astonish people. I want you to look out at the larger city and meet concrete, tangible way the needs of People in such a way that they will say to you, you have to tell me why you do what you do. Jesus says, this is the essence of gospel neighboring. This is at the core. Everybody listen up, please. This is at the core of what it means to follow me. It's not an add-on. 
Is that something you do when you have time? This is at the core of what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. Let me make it tangible. Let me make it concrete. Let me make it very, very realistic. The people you despise, people you hate, the people you can't stand, people who are far from you, not just demographically, but socioeconomically. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Shelter the homeless. Set the oppressed free. This is the essence of one who follows Jesus. We got three weeks to expand on this. We're going to talk about why it's a mandate. We're going to talk about why uh, the, the magnitude of it. Who, when, where, how. We'll talk about the motivation of how it is that we can do this, where do we get the dynamic. And third, and last, we're going to talk about the method. We do want to get practical towards the end of this year. But here's where I want to end today. Here's the first turn. You ready? You ready? You ready? Here it is. Here it is. Who's my neighbor? This religious expert's hatred of the Samaritan runs so deep that he can't even say the name. Oh, hey, how so-and-so? You mean my ex? Hey, how are things between? Well, you mean him? You talking about them? His hatred of this man runs so deep that he can't even let the name Samaritan momentarily rest on his lips. You know what I think the implications are here as we end today? We've got three weeks to flesh out what it means to be a core disciple of Christ. Maybe the question, who is your neighbor, is this question. Everybody say this with me. Who do you hate? Maybe this parable, you guys, has implications about those who betrayed you those who divorced you, those who cheated on you, those who abandoned you, those who stabbed you in the back, those who said all the nasty things about you, those who ruined your reputation, those who gave you cold shoulder. Maybe this parable when we ask the question, who is my neighbor? Instead of jumping going, okay, we need to roll up our sleeve and help the poor. The first question I think Jesus asked you and me is this, I care very much about your heart attitude and your heart motive. Who do you hate? Jesus doesn't get caught up in the religious debate, you know. Who's my neighbor? Listen, Jesus, look, I'm not going to engage in some theological discussion and dialogue about who your neighbor is. Let me tell you something. You have so much hatred in your heart, you can't even say the name. And you're a Christian. Don't feel sorry for the law expert. This is about some of you. And this is about some of us. Who do you hate? Whose name do you have difficulty saying? Am we talking to anybody who's in a prison of hate? 
And we're talking about who is in prison of unforgiveness and hatred and bitterness and anger this morning. And we're talking to anybody who hate is so consumed that your soul is toxic. And when your soul becomes toxic, I talk about this a lot, you become blind. Who do you become blind to? You become blind to people around you that love you. And you start having this attitude, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. I'm all alone. Hate is toxic to the soul. And you find yourself in a prison of hate and you can't get out. Who is your neighbor? Friend? Handful of verses and we're done. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all things. You guys know how this goes, right? We don't like somebody, hate somebody, and so we say something to one other person about that person. All of a sudden, what started as one-on-one becomes two-on-one. That person doesn't like it, so they go tell somebody else. So all of a sudden, what started as one-on-one, and they became two-on-one is two-on-two. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. By the way, hate has filled your heart. If the first thing you do when you go into a situation is you start going, who's on my side? Who's on my, who's with me? Who agrees with me? You don't care about truth. You don't care about what's right. You certainly don't care about reconciliation. You're dismissive of anybody that's willing to challenge your hate. All you're doing is, who's on my side, who's not? If that's you, hate has filled your heart. Your soul is toxic. Hate stirs up conflict, but love. Has hate enabled some of you to bring division and divisiveness in your marriage, in your family, in this church? Proverbs chapter 15, verse 17. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Fattened calf was a sign that you made it. Fattened calf was a sign of luxury. And what this is saying is this. It doesn't matter if you live in that house. It doesn't matter if you drive that car. It doesn't matter if you have that job, that girlfriend, that boyfriend. If hate has filled your heart, you are the most miserable person on earth. You could prop it up all you want with success. But if hate is in your heart, you are miserable. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. What happens when we're not honest about how we're feeling is we start lying first to ourselves and then to others, which then leads to slander. And then we start justifying our lies and our slander because if we were truthful, we would see how ugly that thing is. And we would see how ugly we look. If there's hate, you're not fine and you know it. Who's your neighbor? Who do you hate? What do you do? We'll uncover and unpack this throughout the rest of this year. What do you do if hate has filled your heart? Unforgiveness, bitterness, anger. One is admitted. You know, there's this weird thing where we Christians think that we're not supposed to admit stuff, right? Where does that come from? This convoluted notion. I'm a Christian. I need to have things together, you know. It's pure garbage. Amen? It's garbage. If you're angry, hate has filled your heart, you need to admit it and tell somebody. It has to be exposed. If you want to take an axe to the limbs of hate, you've got to be honest, you guys, about your thoughts and your feelings. Your thoughts and your feelings might be based on all kinds of untruths and lies. And the only way that they will be exposed is if you're willing to be honest with the loving community that says, hey, 
He said, well, I, I wish I was better. I wish I was over it. Well, you're not. Begin where you are. God, this is where I am. If you do, we actually just might wind up respecting you more, not look down on you. Secondly, explore it. What's behind the hate? I heard a psychologist say this once. Oftentimes our hate is rooted in what we're absolutely terrified might be true of us. So when you find somebody filled with hatred and anger and rage about somebody else, ask whether what they hate in that other person might exist in them somewhere. And they're terrified that they might be headed that way. I've had honest people say to me in counseling sessions, Pastor Peter, I think the reason why I hate my dad is because I'm terrified that I might turn out, what? Just like him. So I hate him. Explore it. What's behind it? And third, and lastly, reclaim their humanity so that we don't lose our own. Here's what happens, you guys. Anybody relate? When you start hating somebody, what they did to you, all of a sudden become mumble-jumbled with who they are. Anybody? Anybody? Haven't you? So what they did to you no longer separate from who they are. What they did to you is who they are. So all of a sudden, they're just doer of evil. So they're just the one who betrayed me. They're just the one who dumped me. They're just the one who lied to me. The one who doesn't forgive me. The one who hates me. The one who gives me a hard time. That's all they are. And we caricature them and we go, this is the sum total of who they are. Anybody? And you know here's the thing? When you start dehumanizing people going, that's all they are. They're just evil of wrong. You know what happens to you? You start becoming less human yourself and use the loose capacity to love. Have you ever been to a theme park? You have those cartoon artists that draw pictures? I've never had that done. Do you know why? Because I'm terrified of what they might accentuate about me. That's what they do. They look at you, and they accentuate some characteristic attribute, right? And they blow it up. That's what cartoon artists do. They go, I'm terrified what that might be. Do you know a similar thing happens when we have hate and we're willing to forgive? Well, why did she hurt you? Because, because why? She's just a liar. She's just a liar. Yeah, she's just a liar. Well, do you ever lie? Yes. Well, why did you lie? It's complicated. <laughs> well, you, what do you mean? Well, is this? There's that? You know, situation, circumstances? Oh, okay, so all of a sudden, you're three-dimensional. You're complicated, complex. But they're, they're just a liar. Are you doing that to somebody? Are you doing that? Are you looking at somebody going, that's all you are. You're just a doer of evil. That's all you are to me. That's all you did. And all of a sudden, you start dehumanizing them. And what happens to your soul? You have to reclaim their humanity. What does it mean? Wrapping up here, the Samaritan says that took pity. What does it mean to take pity? It literally means to have your heart go out to somebody. In other words, you're identifying with them. 
to have pity on somebody who has wronged you means that you deliberately do the internal work of reminding yourself how much you have in common. You put yourself in their shoes and you begin to empathize and sympathize. The only way that you maintain hatred and bitterness and anger and unforgiving spirit and your heart's going to want to do this is continue to accentuate the differences. I'm nothing like them. I'm nothing like them. I'm nothing like them. As long as you say I'm nothing like them, you'll maintain hatred and you'll never move forward. You got to reclaim their humanity so you don't lose your own. You've got to go to a place where you have to stop caricaturing them, seeing them as these one-dimensional. That's all they are. You've got to look at them and say, they're human beings. They're human beings. Miroslav Volf, one of my favorite theologians, said this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. You're only going to stay mad at somebody and unforgiving if you continue to feel superior to them. And the way you feel superior to other people is you go, I would never do that. Never. And you'll never be able to forgive somebody if you refuse to admit. You may not do exactly the same thing that they did, but maybe you do things like that, or you would do things like that, or you're capable of it if you had the chance. You can't love your neighbor. You can't love. You can't forgive. If you're not willing to identify with them and saying, I am a sinner just like you, saved by the grace of God. And you stop dehumanizing them and saying, I would never do what they've done or where they've been. How many of us really want others to see us simply for our mistakes and our sins? You can't hold other people to a different standard then. This morning, um, and this is so critical, because the last thing I want to do in this sermon series is to have many of you just kind of go, yes, we need to help the poor, we need to be people of justice and compassion, which is awesome, and that's where we're going. When you have unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, anger in your heart, or somebody and you're masking that and you're hiding that you're repressing that all in the name of doing good things for other people I asked my staff to prepare a card and this card simply has a line that says blank is my neighbor And the way I wanted to end this morning's service is it's going to be a sacred, holy ceremony. Because God's clear. He doesn't want you to carry that hatred in your heart. He doesn't. His death and resurrection was for you to be set free. For some of us, today must be the day that we begin the journey of saying, God, I don't want to hold on to this any longer. I can't even say his name. I don't even want to think about who she is and he is. Now what I want to do this morning is I just want to simply invite you
those of you. And I'm not going to say much more to elaborate. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is spoken and you're going, I need to go up. I need to let this go. I need to be set free. So they're going, well, I don't have any specific person in mind. It's a group of people. That's called racism. It's called bigotry. It's called prejudice. We are a church that wants to be authentic. It begins here. Come on up. Come on up. Chris, you can come on up and get ready. Find a place. There are pens up here. There are cards up here. Come on up. If you're coming up, please take a moment to kneel and to sit. Don't just, come on up, come on up, come on up, come on up, come on up. Take a moment, find a place in the front. Come on up. Really? There's nobody else? (laughs) Really? Come on, guys. Come on. Come on. Come on up. Pastor Mark, one other. Can you guys, there are folks who are coming up. There are cards way up here on the stage. Can you guys go ahead? Yeah. And for those of you that are coming up, will you find some space up in the front area? Find space. And I'll give you guys some time. I'm going to give you some time. And if you've come up, I actually, if you guys could just stay up here for a moment because I'm going to ask our church to be family and to pray with you and for you in a moment. So just take a card, a pen, pencil. If you need a pencil, please ask somebody. Just find a place up in the front and go ahead and sit down and kneel. And in a moment, I'm going to ask our church folks to come up. And if you just, look, if you're out there, will you do me a favor? Just pray for the men and women that are taking this incredible, bold step to do this. Will you just, just do that? Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Still have time. And those of you that are up here, don't don't be in a hurry or rush. Don't don't worry about the person next to you, in front of you. I give you this time. I give you this time. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor?
those of you sitting and kneeling up front as you've written that name and some of you it's a miracle of God that you could even write that person's name because it's been weeks and months and maybe years will you just go ahead and talk to God and say God I've repressed this I haven't said it I haven't admitted it and it's destroying my soul it's destroying my soul I don't want to carry this any longer I don't want to carry this any longer God God help me to reclaim their humanity God by the power of your Holy Spirit will you enable me somehow to identify with them as a common sinner saved by the grace of God. God, I can't do this on my own strength. I've tried. That's why I gave up. I need you. I need you. I need you. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask you, I know we're going a little bit long today. Hang in there. We'll wrap up soon. I'd like to ask those of you that are kneeling and sitting just to be ministered to. You don't have to say anything. And I'd like to ask those of you sitting out there, you know some folks up here. They're your friends, your family. Some folks you don't know. But you're sitting out there saying, and you're listening to the Holy Spirit, and, and you're being prompted to just come on up, put your arm around somebody, kneel with them, just be present. One of the choose about the Good Samaritan we'll look at next week is the Good Samaritan just came and just was with him, just was present. What an amazing first step. Just to come and be with so at this time, I want to invite some of you in the church to come on up. Come on up. Come on up. We're not going to do this for a long time. We're going to just come on up. Find somebody up here, please. Find somebody up here. Find somebody up here. Go sit, kneel, stand next to, embrace. I'd like some of you guys to come all the way up front, please. All the way. There are folks up here, all the way up front, I, if possible, so that nobody would be left out. Thank you so much for doing this, church, for being the church. Thank you. Thank you. Pastor Michael, there are a couple folks up here, if you can. Thank you. And I'll just let you guys minister for the next minute or so. Just go ahead and minister to them. We don't.
Father, we um, come to you broken. We come to you um, desperate. We come to you acknowledging our, our flaws and acknowledging God our our wounds. Father, we as a church community. Come around and pray for and pray with every single man, woman, and child, God, that is kneeling before you today and saying, "God, I want to be free. God, I want to be free. I want to be healed. God, I want to begin the journey, God, of letting this go." Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gospel, the ultimate power, the ultimate motivation, the ultimate answer that reminds us, God, that you reached down and out to us while we were yet your enemies, and you forgave, and you healed, and you bandaged, and you. To care of, and you extended compassion. You embraced. You loved. You delivered. You set free, and you healed us from our iniquities, our wounds, our our sins. And God, by the power of Your Holy Spirit that resides within us today, we pray boldly and we pray confidently, God, that as we in this holy act, in this holy ritual of letting this go and giving it to You, that You would bring healing, that You would bring deliverance, that You would bring restoration, that You would bring forgiveness. And do that which we cannot do on our own strength, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We need you as we begin this journey, O、oh、God. Be with these men and women, God, as we kneel before you, keeping you constantly at the forefront, and empowered by your Spirit and your Gospel. Help us to take the next step and the next journey. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's all stand together.
because of time, we have a members meeting at noon. Because of time, I just want to pray a prayer of benediction and dismiss us. We have three more weeks in this journey. As always, and I want you to come by yourself, invite that person that you've been praying for, invite that neighbor, friend, coworker, classmate. We'll see you back here next week. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not a moralistic story that says, do loving deeds so that God would accept you. It's a fundamental story about the gospel that reminds us that we have someone who came in our stead and did what we cannot do. And in him, we can be accepted. And in him, we can be justified. May the truth of the gospel empower you, son, daughter of God, as you live this week. May you remember the men and women that you prayed with and keep them in your prayers throughout this week. Remember your church family. May the Lord go before you, behind you, and beside you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Have a great, great week, you guys. We'll see you downstairs. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.